reading out of James chapter 2. So you can get there in your Bibles or your phone. It will also be on the screen behind me. But I'm going to read our passage in its entirety today. If you would stand to your feet in honor of God's word, and I will read this. James chapter 2. It says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Let's pray. Lord, we need your spirit this morning as we look at your word, and we thank you for his presence with us. As I was preparing for this morning, I, I just had a phrase that kept coming into my mind. It was finishing touches. Um, Lord, I just feel like some of what James says here is something that you have been speaking to the heart of our church, our local family on mission, uh, for quite some time about. And Lord, we thank you for the places in the last 10 years when our hearts have aligned with your heart on these issues that your spirit speaks to us in the book of James. Um, But Lord, I just feel like today, like it's time for the finishing nails and the putty and the sanding and the smoothing and the painting. Uh, It's time for this to be driven deep down into our souls irrevocably as a church. And so, Lord, we just pray that your spirit would come and apply this word to us in power. Lord, we open ourselves to you. We trust you. And so speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Imagine with me for one second 
that you are church shopping. Maybe you're here today church shopping. If that's you, then this sermon especially applies. But imagine for a second that you are looking for a church. And you're visiting different churches from Sunday morning to Sunday morning to find out what these congregations are all about. Let me ask you a question. How do you tell what they're all about? What things do you look for? What things do you process and observe and try to understand so that you can really understand the heart of this church and decide if you want to be identified with it? Is it the quality of the coffee in the foyer? Is it uh, the worship experience and if it's able to hold your attention the whole time? Um, Is it how friendly people are when you come in the door if you're greeted. Um, Maybe it's the color of the carpet for you, probably not. I think most of you are probably deeper than that, right? So maybe you look for some deeper things. Maybe you look for the church's doctrinal statement and make sure it's something that you can align with, something that you can really say, I believe this in its entirety. Maybe you see if there's programs that are going to serve you and your family, maybe particularly your kids or teenagers. All of those things are probably things that come into our minds when we're looking for a church. And some of those things are less important, the quality of the coffee. But some of those things would probably be pretty important to us, the doctrinal statement, other things. But today, James, in James chapter 2, gives us two tests so that we can really understand the heart of a local congregation, so that we can really understand what a local family on mission is all about. He gives us two tests. Now, I'm not saying this morning that all of those things I just mentioned aren't important. To me, coffee is very important. If you heard my sermon last week, you know that, right? Um, I'm not saying that what we believe is important, is super important. But it is interesting that when James gets to the heart of what it means to be a local family on mission, he doesn't mention any of the things that I just brought up. Instead, he gives us two tests. He says, you can tell a lot about a local church. You can tell a lot about what it's really about. You can tell a lot about what it values and what it does not value by these two scenarios. And it's interesting for me, at least, as I was saying the passage, because I thought if I were visiting churches, I'm not even sure I would look for these two things. But as you know, the quality of the coffee in the foyer can be really, really good, and it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the heart of the church, right? So James wants to get to something essential, something foundational, something significant about what it means to be a local church on mission. So very simply... He lays out for us two scenarios, two tests that let us know what a church is really all about. The first test is this. He says, imagine, suppose that a rich man and a poor man come into your gathering. So the context of this passage is a gathering like this. This is what James is imagining, that Christians have come together for worship and teaching. And he says, imagine that two people come in, one Wealthy, he's dressed nicely and he's wearing a gold ring and the other comes in with filthy old clothes. Now, it's easy when we read passages like this to be legalistic with them. And this is what I mean. 
I mean legalistic, to our own advantage. Let me give you an example. I bet some of you have done this. You've told your kids not to touch each other, like do not touch your sibling, right? And some kids are smart enough to know that they can hold out their finger right up to their sibling's face, right? And what do we do? We still correct that. Why? Because they're being legalists with what we told them, right? They're saying, well, I'm not touching them. I'm not touching them. I didn't cross the line. But they did cross the line, right? Because they crossed the spirit of what we were communicating to them, right? So we read this passage wrong if we take this example that James gives and we don't think about how it might apply. Now, this is very interesting because James does not say in this passage, it's, he could have, it's just not what he's talking about. He does not give the example in this passage of a poor person coming into the church and outright prejudice being displayed against them. He does not tell a story. He does not tell them to imagine that a poor person with filthy clothes, comes in, and that what they are met with is, get out right now. He could have told that story. It's just not the example he gave. He gives a much more subtle example. He talks about the intentions of people's hearts, both toward the rich and toward the poor, and how this gets expressed in ways that are so subtle that they might not even be perceivable. But they're real nonetheless. It might be as subtle as who gets special attention. Who gets asked to sit where? Things that, that might not be immediately noticeable to the eye, but are the real intentions of the heart. So we might ask ourselves, all right, if a rich person, a poor person came in, uh, one noticeably in need and the other noticeably having resources, what might be some of the responses that we might have? Jane's response here is worth thinking through. Would they get a quicker invitation to sit down next to us if they looked more put together? Would they get a quicker invitation? How many weeks would they have to come before they got an invitation for lunch after church? Would a person in filthy clothes, would it take longer for them to receive such an invitation? Let's imagine that these are families, a family that's very put together and has resources come in, and a family that is really in need and very obviously doesn't have resources comes in. Would we be more eager for our kids to be friends with one set of kids over the other? Which one would we be more likely to try to engage in conversation with? Um, which one would be considered for church leadership sooner based off of how we perceive them to be put together? You see what I mean? James is getting at something very subtle here that happens in our hearts, but it's something very real. And he tells us in this scenario, in this test, where a poor and a rich person walk into a gathering like this, that there are two ways that we can respond. We can either, as a group of people, respond in relationships with the people who God sends us and with each other, we can respond in relationships as either consumers or contributors. Either as consumers or contributors. You know what I mean when I say consumer? I mean, it's what we do every time we walk into the grocery store, right? When I walk into the grocery store, even though I'm giving the store money, I'm not going into the grocery store to be a contributor, right? I'm not contributing to some cause that I believe in at Giant Eagle, right? I'm going in to get, because I'm hangry, right? 
That's why I'm going into the store. I'm expecting to go in and to leave with something that is in my self-interest, right? Now, that might be okay when we're shopping, when we're shopping for food in the grocery store, but James is getting at something far more serious. He's saying what's okay when you're grocery shopping is not okay when we're talking about people. It's not okay when we're talking about the people that God has sent to us, but we will either fundamentally see them through the lens of consumerism, meaning what can I get out of this person, and it's often non-material. It's not as obvious as a wealthy person walking in and saying, oh, I want their stuff, or I want access to their pool or car or whatever. It's often just getting a sense of acceptance because this person has status and is accepting us. It's often just feeling like an insider because this person seems like an insider and in relationship with them, we can be an insider too. It's these subtle things, but it's still trying to get something from the person. And it's easy to do it as a whole church. Oh, this person would really be able to contribute to our mission. This person would really be able to help us because it seems like they have more to offer us. Um, we can choose to relate to each other that way or as contributors asking the question, first of all, rich or poor, what is it that I can give to this person instead of what is it that I can get out of them? Now, here's what this reveals. Depending on how a local church like ours responds to the different people who God sends into our community, depending on how we respond to that, um, it's going to reveal something. It's going to reveal what is really the foundation of our relationships. It's going to show us what we really build our relationships upon. And I can tell you, if we relate to each other as consumers, there's one foundation we'll build our relationships on. If we relate to each other as contributors, there's another foundation that we will build our relationships upon, and they're very, very different. Um, let's go back to this idea of being a consumer. What is the foundation of consumeristic relationships where we look at each other to see what we can get out of one another? What is the foundation? Well, James says it in this passage. It's judgment. Judgment is the foundation of relationships that are built on consumerism. Judgment is the foundation of relationships that are built upon a foundation where we are sizing each other up, right? And you know this if you go grocery shopping, because when I go grocery shopping, at least, I go in as a judge, right? I compare products, right? I look at labels. I compare prices. I love it in the grocery store. I do the grocery shopping in our family. I love, the grocery, I love it when they have the unit price right there on the label for you. Because, you know, something might be bigger or smaller, but it might actually be cheaper or more expensive. I love it when the store just makes it easy for me, right? But whatever's happening, I am going in as a judge, right? I am sizing up everything that I pick up into my hand and deciding if I'm going to keep it or not. This is what James says happens in churches that show favoritism. As soon as someone comes in, we're sizing them up. We're seeing what they have to offer or don't offer personally or corporately, what we feel like they can contribute to us. That's the question 
that we're asking as soon as they come in. Again, that may be okay in grocery stores, but it's terrible when it comes to people. Can you imagine a religious environment that is built on people sizing each other up, like food labels, deciding what we like and what we don't like, who fits our needs and who doesn't fit our needs? That sounds miserable. The only person that that does not sound miserable to is somebody who really believes that they are a better product than most in the store, right? The only person who can survive in that kind of system of judgment and sizing each other up is somebody who really thinks they have more to offer than most people around them, who really thinks that their product of what it means to be a human is better because it's wealthier or better because it's more beautiful or better because it's more religious. They are more likely to get picked so the system doesn't hurt as much, right? But James tells us that if what we do as a church family is build our relationships on consumerism, there are consequences that we may not have thought of when we first entered into that system. There are both horizontal consequences and there are vertical consequences. The horizontal consequences are this, and you know this when you go into the store, that you have need for a product until you don't need it anymore, right? And then you move on. Listen, I might buy the same product in the grocery store, the same uh, brand, the same label for five years. But I'm telling you, the first time I walk in there and someone shoves something in my face that's cheaper for the same price and it's the same quality, I'm abandoning my product loyalty, right? Because I'm not emotionally invested in these products, right? I'm just trying to get something out of them. There's nothing wrong with doing that, because I'm shopping in my own self-interest. But it's a terrible thing when we relate to each other out of the need, out of our own needs, and then when that person cannot supply that to us anymore, we are ready to abandon them. And I don't care how good of a product you are. I don't care how well that system works for you. Eventually, a system of judgment comes back and devours the people who participate in it. And this is exactly what James is saying in this passage. Remember, the believers he's writing to are persecuted, marginalized, they're hurting. And it sounds like, from what we can tell, it sounds like some people came into their gathering and their uh, radar immediately went off and they said, oh, here's some people who can help us. They have more relational capital. They have more resources. We're hurting. These are people who can help our church. In other words, someone came in, it felt innocent enough, but they were looking at them through what they could get out of the relationship. And then what happened? James says, aren't these the same people who are now taking you to court? Aren't these the same people who are misusing you now? Why is that happening? Because when we use people, eventually they will use us. That's how it works in a system of judgment. That's how it works when we relate to each other based on consumerism. So that's the horizontal consequence. But there's a vertical consequence too. It's like James is asking these Christians, do you really want a religious system where you relate to God based off of judgment? Off of consumerism? 
Think about what you're building. As a church, he's telling them, think about what you're participating in. Is that how you want God to relate to you? Because he says it so clearly, if you've broken the law in one place, you've broken the law in every place. If you've murdered someone, you've also committed adultery. If you've committed adultery, you've also lied to your neighbor. If you've lied to your neighbor, you've also committed idolatry. The law comes as a whole package from God, and either we obey all of it or we've broken all of it. But there's, no, there's nothing in the middle, right? See, there's something freeing, freeing in this. Let me just say this. Shame is the lie that you are exceptionally bad, right? That you are bad in comparison to the people sitting next to you. Well, I have something that is both sobering but may also be freeing for you to know this morning. We're just all equally bad, all right? We've all broken the law entirely, completely. Doesn't matter how religious we are or aren't, we've all done it. We've broken the law of God, lawbreakers. And if that's who we are, if lawbreakers is who we are because of our sin, I don't know about you, but... I want to know that I'm not going to have to relate to God through the lens of consumerism and judgment, <laughs> right? You know, it's interesting. James does something interesting in this passage. It's unusual for a New Testament book. He only names the name of Jesus twice in the whole book. It's pretty unusual for a book in the New Testament. And that doesn't mean that he's not talking about Jesus. He's referencing Jesus and the things of Jesus through the whole book. But it does mean that he carefully chooses when to use Jesus' name. And this is one of those passage, passages in James 2.1. He says, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So why is he saying the name of Jesus in this passage? Well, I think it's because James is wanting to remind us that when it came to God, he did not relate to us like a product on a grocery store shelf. If he had done that, he would have sized up every single one of us, looked at every single label, and he would have found us to be unsatisfactory because we are all lawbreakers. But here's what Jesus did. He walked into the grocery store and he said, I don't care about the quality. I don't care how banged up the cans are. I don't care if it's overpriced or I don't care at all. I'm buying the whole store. I buy it all. I just buy it all. That's the gospel. That's the cross was that God related to us as a contributor. Shouldn't have been that way, but it's what his love did. He related to us as a contributor. He bought us, and it's not because we met some standard. It's just because he loved us. It's because he knew that we were more than a can of soup on a grocery store shelf, right? And guess what? Once he bought you, he'll always keep you, right? He won't move on. Because here's the thing. When there's unlimited resources of love, then you can just keep buying, right? We are so judicious when we go into the grocery store because we have a fixed amount of money that we want to spend and we need to fit our needs within it, right? But something amazing happens, friends, when we step into this reality of the gospel, the good news that God has contributed to us most of all through his son Jesus Christ and has opened up all of the stuff of God and God himself. We get all of it because he bought us. When we step into that reality, something amazing happens. We stop walking around looking at each other saying, I have a dollar to spend here. I have a dollar to spend here. I have a dollar to spend here. 
See, if someone walks into a grocery store and buys the whole store, there's only one reason they're doing that. It's because they must really believe, they may be a lunatic, but they must, they must really believe that they have unlimited resources to keep buying the stuff in the store, right? This is exactly what James says in this passage. Don't you know that God chose those who are poor? God, in his grace and his mercy, chose those who couldn't buy anything, who couldn't meet some standard, who couldn't be good enough or smart enough or beautiful enough. God just chose them. He just picked them. He just bought them. And when we start to believe that, it means that we stop treating love like money that we only have so much of to go around. The truth is, if Jesus bought the whole store, it means we get to go in with him and we get to spend too because we have unlimited amounts of money. Am I making sense this morning? That's what it is to be a people who don't relate to each other through consumerism, but relate to each other through the lens of contribution. I have something to give because even if I was poor, God made me rich in his love. The poorest among us have something to give, friends. The poorest among us have something to share because of the love of God. So that's the first test. The second test is this. He says, Imagine that somebody asks for help who needs help. They don't have food or clothing, and they ask for help. What do you do? He says, if the response of a community of people is that we say, we hope that you're fed, we hope that you're taken care of, but then we don't do anything about it, um, it shows two very different responses, that we can respond either in words only or in action. And we were talking some about this last week. James is saying a church family's heart is revealed by whether it responds to this kind of tangible need with just nice religious speech or with action that actually transforms someone's life. I was talking about the things that we could decide, you know, if we liked a church or if we didn't like a church. And maybe some of those seem trivial, like coffee and the color of the carpet, but some seem more important, right? like what a church believes. And it is true that what a church believes is very, very important, but here's what James is telling us, that you can tell what a church actually believes because what a church actually believes is in the space between the doctrinal statement it posts on its website and the way that it's actually in the margins helping people. There you find the heart of a church. And friends, this is so important to point out, because we live in a day that is increasingly wordy, right? Where people identify with words on TV or identify with words in social media. And sometimes we think that just because we've said something, that it's meaningful. But James is not saying that words don't matter at all. He's just saying that words combined with action show the real heart of God's people, right? Listen, we live in a day and age that tries, I think I can say this authoritatively from the word of God, hear a warning in this, friends. We live in a day that tries to co-opt religious language and tries to use it without real action behind it. Listen, I'm going to draw a real clear boundary here about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. 
You can believe what you will about some of the things that our society argues about in the day in which we live. You can have your opinions on immigration and racism. You can have your opinions on health care and poverty. These are real significant issues. And friends, I'm not sure that from the word of God, I can tell you how to fix all of it, that I can tell you how to vote, that I can tell you how to organize and to activate. I'm not certain I can authoritatively do that from this position that I'm standing in this morning. But what I can tell you this, whether it's the left or the right, Republican or Democrat that begins to use religious language as an excuse to not help people, that's heresy. We can't hide behind that. We can't make ourselves feel good behind religious language. And let me be clear, both sides do it. If there was ever a day to be discerning in what you read on social media, to be discerning in what you consume in the news, it is the day in which we live, friends, because the spirit of the age sounds increasingly religious when it wants to. Right? But here's how you know. You don't know. You don't know because a politician used religious language. And both sides do it. You don't know because a church has a great doctrinal statement. You know because what they claim to believe expresses itself authentically in action. That's how you tell the difference. James says it in the strongest language possible. He says, look, even demons believe the statements of faith. Right? As a matter of fact, they probably know some more about God than some of us do, right? They've been around longer. <laughs> They've been observing for a long time. And if we ever needed proof that religious language and just knowing some things about God isn't enough, it's this, what James says, that even demons believe some of these things, but they're out to destroy people, not to help them, Right? A gospel people, this will manifest in action. Okay, as I close, three takeaways I want to take from these two tests. And church, by the way, I just want to say this to you. I know we are not perfect here at Crestmont. I know we have a long ways to go. But I also want to tell you this. It is my privilege to stand in front of this family and to teach a message that I believe uh, is on the hearts of many in this room and that is manifesting in the lives of many in this room. That's not some self-righteous pat on the back. Let the word of God convict us. But in a sense, and I thought this this week, what a blessing. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> and that is a blessing when it comes to a hard corrective passage like this. So I want to thank you for being on this journey with us. Three takeaways. First of all, a church's attitude toward people on the margins reveals its attitude toward the gospel. Right? If you want to know what a church is really about, if you want to know what a local community of faith is really about, then see how it treats people on the margins. And listen, we can't really say that any local family on mission is exempt from this test, right? Because every local family on mission comes into contact with marginalized people. I don't care if a church is located in the wealthiest community in the Pittsburgh region or if it's located on the edge of the poorest community in Beaver County or if it's located right in the middle of a poor neighborhood. Wherever a church is, it will have the opportunity and the privilege to interact with people who are marginalized in one way or another. It's human behavior. We all get into the grocery store 
and the best products get on the top and the lowest ones get on the bottom, right? It's just how humans act, right? We move into hierarchies, even if it's just socially. And, and we certainly do it in other ways. But even if it's just socially, we form these hierarchies. And friends, I believe with all my heart that God is looking for churches who will open up their doors to those on the margins. And not just in word. A lot of churches preach it. But I'm talking about churches who will live it and who will do it. I believe that God's looking for those churches. Friends, I have to tell you, the days of putting out a nice sign on Broadhead Road and saying we have services at a certain time and our church just filling with people, culturally, that ship has sailed a long time ago. I think you know that, right? Most churches in our region are in decline. They're not growing. I think you know that, right? But let me tell you something. There are so many people who want a family on mission. They may not want institutional religion, but they do want a family on mission. So many people who want a king like Jesus, they don't even know that they want him yet, but they want a king like Jesus. So many people whose hearts are waiting to be accepted. The problem is we, uh, the church often looks at these hordes of people and says, well, actually, when we were thinking about our church growing, we weren't thinking about that crowd, right? We get picky with our dollars, right? Picky with our invites, Picky with our welcome. Listen, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like seed that a farmer takes and just throws, right? There's enough to go around, right? Don't be picky with the seed, right? Just throw the seed. Throw the seed. There's enough love to go around, right? So this is a test that every church, especially in the day in which we live, has the opportunity uh, to engage in to see its real heart revealed. My second takeaway, a church's relationship with people on the margins will force it to face where it has wandered from the gospel. Where it has wandered from the gospel into religion, this will be revealed in its interactions with people on the margins. Let me give you a very personal example. I was in Harrisburg this last weekend. And we were staying in a hotel. We, Levi had a competition in the area. And early in the morning, I woke up. Hey, by the way, on another note, have you ever tried to stay with five people in a little hotel room? Some of you have. Wow. New, yes. <laughs> See some, yeah, it's intense. It tested, tested me. All right, so anyway. So I woke up at like 4.30 in the morning, and I thought, I'm going to go take a walk and uh, I'm going to reflect on the sermon for tomorrow. So I start walking around Harrisburg. I'm walking around, um, you know, the Capitol building. And uh, one thing I did not expect, it's a beautiful part of the city if you've ever been to Harrisburg, but one thing I did not expect walking around the Capitol building was how many homeless people were in the parks surrounding the Capitol building. Um, I showed up at a time when the sun was coming up, and so people were stirring on their park benches. You know, it was like the park was waking up. Um, whatever I think about politics in Pennsylvania, uh, that picture is not soon going to leave my mind, right? Those people uh, hanging out there. So anyway, I'm walking around, and I'm praying, and these people are stirring. I'm enjoying God's presence, praying for the sermon today. And there's this pedestrian bridge that crosses uh, the river there. So I'm walking across this pedestrian bridge. I'm enjoying this. 
And all of a sudden, I, the air is pierced with this screaming. There's this awful screaming coming from the park to the left of me. And I can see a big expanse of the park because I'm on this bridge, right? And I can make out it's a woman's voice, but I can't see anything. I can't even tell where it's coming from, but she's screaming from the left side. And it sounded like she was in distress, and I couldn't assess the situation from where I was standing. Um, and so I just got out my phone and called the police. And I just said, hey, I don't even know where from the park this is coming from, but I just feel like someone needs help. And they said, okay, we'll send an officer down. But as I got closer before the police got there, I could see what was happening. This woman, I'm assuming she was homeless, um, had slept there and had all of her stuff gathered together. Now, you know how this often works to us. What she had gathered there by this wall in the park might have looked like trash to us, but to her, that's her life, right? That's her possessions. Those are the few things that she has. And she had gotten into an altercation with a man. I don't, even, I don't know who started it. I saw this all from a distance. But this man had come up and picked up her stuff and was throwing it into the river, right? And what came out was this screaming, was this cursing, right? All of this was happening. Um, and you know what that did in me as I got closer to it? It activated in me all of the stuff that is not gospel. Sizing people up, <laughs> Deciding if these people are deserving of my help or not. Judgment about them acting in the way that they were acting, right? The temptation to cross to the other side of the street, right, and not be involved. The temptation to, to go up the alley so I don't have to be around these people. All that stuff got activated in my soul. And friends, I can tell you, it probably would not have gotten activated just by attending church, right? It's by getting around the margins that that ugliness comes out. It's by getting around hurting people that that ugliness comes out. And there I was yesterday morning just feeling some of that stuff rise up in my soul and just thinking these are parts of me that are not gospel, <laughs> right? That see people through a consumeristic lens, that see people through what they can give me, right? See, this is a blessing, church. When we get around people on the margins again and again and again, we are forced to assess what our church is really built on, what we really believe. And, and this is where the perseverance comes to keep being involved with people who are really hurting. The blessing comes because we recognize that they have something to give to us. It's not just that we're helping them. It's that God is using even these two screaming people. God is using the two of them to speak something to me about my heart and the gospel. That's motivation to keep showing up, right? To keep showing up around people. Lastly, my last takeaway as we close here is just this, that a church that is able to embrace people on the margins will also minister the gospel to me will also minister good news to me. I've been saying that if our church relationships are built on consumerism and judgment, we may be able to play that game and maybe some people will survive, but a lot of people won't be able to survive. But here's what I know, church. I need a church that can show me grace. I need a church that can show me mercy. 
Because I may be able to play the judgment thing for a little bit. I may be able to act good enough to get you to accept me, but eventually you're going to see something broken in me. Eventually you're going to see something that has not been put together yet. And in that time, I need a church that can show me mercy and can show me grace. I was in Atlanta years ago now, over a decade ago. I was in Atlanta. And um, I visited this church. I've been to a lot of churches, many fancy buildings, many impressive services. And quite honestly, a lot of churches I've been to, I don't remember for long after I leave. (laughs) All right? But this church, I'll never forget. It was over a decade ago. I wasn't even there for a service. I was there for a training. But here's why I remember the church. Yeah, the facilities looked great. It was in downtown Atlanta. Facilities looked great. They had renovated this uh, warehouse space, and it was beautiful, you know, what they had done with it. It seemed to me that their graphics, from what I could see, were really nice. They were communicating themselves. Well, all of that is great. But here's what I remember about the church. They were meeting in this warehouse space, and they thought, why don't we let the homeless sleep in our church sanctuary? And so during our whole training, there's people sleeping along the wall because they just decided to take literally what James says in this passage. Imagine that. And they just welcomed in people that God was sending. Now, there's a lot of things about that church that I could say, but here's one thing I know. I know without ever talking to the pastor, I know this, that church would accept me, right? That church would minister the gospel to me. See, sometimes when we create put-together environments, then we even subtly select put-together people so it keeps fitting into the put-together environment. But when you have homeless people sleeping in your sanctuary, oh, it's like, oh, any old person will do, right? You're welcome here. Anybody can come, right? That's a church that can minister the gospel to me. I don't know what programs they offer. I don't know if the preaching's good or not. Um, I did know something about their statement of belief. But here's what I do definitely know about that church. They can minister the gospel to me. Church, that's a church I want to be a part of. (laughs) That's a church I want to attend. That's a church I think God is making us into. That I'm privileged to be part of leading. I think that's what God is doing among us. Amen? If you'd stand to your feet, I'm going to ask Steve to come and close the service of the prayer ministers could come forward and be available to pray for people. Let's see if you could close us.